Good morning. How's everybody? Doing well. Hey, if you've joined us online this morning, we want to say welcome. We're grateful that you're here. If you're new here or online, we're really thankful that you uh, joined us this morning, that, you, uh, that you're choosing to worship with us. Again, we acknowledge that Sheridan has a lot of great churches, and in that we are blessed. If you're looking for a church home and would find one here, we would, we would be uh, very excited about that. But more importantly, uh, what we want to see is you have a, a church home uh, here in the community. So... Um, on that note, we are into our book here, First Peter, and, and, and Pastor Mike last week went through uh, chapters 1 through 5. So uh, at the time that uh, Peter is writing this letter, Nero is, uh, he's, he's, the, he's the guy in charge over Rome. He's ruling over Rome. Uh, his uh, mother named Agrippina, uh, she convinced her husband Claudius to adopt Nero, uh, and then she turned around and she put Claudius to death. She, she killed him. Uh, Nero actually uh, killed his uh, younger stepbrother, poisoned him, um, and took the throne at the age of 17. Um, eventually, he had his mother stabbed to death for treason. He had his wife, Octavia, beheaded for adultery. He had Octavia's head displayed for his mistress, Popea, whom years later, he kicked while she was pregnant and she died. Um, in the beginning of the year 66, Nero married Statalia Massalina. Later that year in 67, he, named, he married Sporus, um, a male slave uh, who was said to bear a remarkable resemblance to Popea, the wife that he was pregnant and he had killed. Um, he had Sporus made a eunuch and married Sporus, uh, had Sporus wear... Um, garments uh, that a, a Roman wife would wear in public. Later on, he went and married uh, Dora Forrest, and he wore the wedding gown. In 64 AD, Nero set Rome on fire, and then he turned around and blamed the Christians for that. Um, so the following account is written by the Roman historian Tacitus in his book, The Annals. And it says this, it says, therefore, to stop the rumor that he had set Rome on fire, he, Emperor Nero, falsely charged with guilt and punished with the most fearful tortures, the persons commonly called Christians who were generally hated for their enormities. Christus, the founder of that name, was put to death as a criminal by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the region of Tiberias. But the pernicious superstition, repressed for a time, broke out yet again, not only through Judea, where the mischief originated, but through the city of Rome also, whither all things horrible and disgraceful flows from all quarters as to a common receptacle and where they are encouraged. Accordingly, first those who were arrested, who confessed they were Christians, next on their information, a vast multitude were convic convicted, not so much on the charge of burning the city as of hating the human race." So uh, Nero had skins, animal skins placed on their hides, placed on Christians, and had uh, wolves, uh, packs of dogs attack them. Um, he set them on fire. He nailed Christians to crosses. He impaled Christians, dipped them in oil, and lit his garden parties with them as they were on fire. According to the historian Eusebius, Nero beheaded Paul and had Peter crucified. 
So this is the leadership that Paul was under, or that Peter was under as he writes this letter. And Peter begins by saying this. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfast, and let the steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. That wasn't Peter. That was James that wrote that. But um, this, is the, this is the picture of, of, and this is where Peter is exactly going to take off from, is from this same exact spot. Verse 6, he says this. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your, tra- your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he starts out this whole thing by saying, count it joy. James tells us, count it pure joy when facing various trials and temptation, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So let endurance have its complete effect that you might be complete, perfect, lacking in nothing. And if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all and it will be given him. But when he asks, let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, tossed to and fro. That man ought to not to expect anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And so there's this picture that, that, that Peter and James are, that, that says when we're in the middle of the struggle, when, when, when life isn't going the way that we want it to go, when we don't feel good about the leadership that, that maybe we're sitting under or the direction that things are going, or maybe the difficulties that have entered into our lives, or maybe our health conditions, or maybe any of these things that he's saying to consider it joy. Why is that? Is that what we do? Do you do that? I don't know. I think that sometimes in the middle of some of these struggles, we have two options. One tends to be beating your head against a wall, and the other tends to be trying to find what God might have in this. How is it that Christians can have joy in the middle of such difficult times? How is it that we can understand that, that, that God is about something? You see, Peter, he pushes us back. He, he points us back to this. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while. Pastor Mike spoke about this last week, but, but it's this idea that says this. It says, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Jesus encourages us to, to seek his kingdom first, right? To lay up for ourselves treasure where moths and thieves can't break in and steal or destroy, uh, a place where, where it's held, where it's really safe, where we're living our life for something that's important and something that is going to transcend beyond the temporal nature of the world that we live in today. You see, it's a living hope. It's an inheritance. It's something that we look forward to. Because of what God has done for us, because he's, he's purchased for us everything that we truly need, 
we can live in the midst of the circumstances of our lives with joy. Not necessarily happiness. He's not calling us to necessarily be incredibly happy about it, but he is saying that your circumstances are not greater than the promises that I have for you. Your, your circumstances are not bigger than God is. Your circumstances are not beyond his scope of control or understanding. He knows he's with us and he meets us in the middle of this spot and he is at work in our lives. And so when we turn our struggles and our difficulties over to him, we can begin to trust and know that he's actually working something good in our lives, that he's actually taking the hardships of our lives and he's forging character in our lives. And the reality of it is, is when we look into our lives, we begin to realize that it's at those times, it's in those hard spots that we've actually been forged into who we are today. And, and how we approach those things has everything to do with how we come out of the other side of those things. You see, when we, when we meet the difficulties and we, 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 we try to go around them, which we often do, we find ourselves only facing them again. Some of the things, some of the trials, some of the struggles and difficulties in our lives have to be gone through. They can't be gone around. And, and so, so many times we, we try to continue to just go around some of these struggles. You see, the idea of inheritance is, 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 a, is a picture that the Bible has painted for us for a long time. As a matter of fact, there's a story in the Old Testament about Jacob and Esau, right? They were twins. Esau comes out first. He has the right of the firstborn. He has the inheritance. He'll, he'll receive the majority of the inheritance. He'll be groomed to become the patriarch of the family. You see, everything about his position is about his leadership. It's about, it's about his inheritance. It's about a hope. It's about a future. And it's about a future that God has for him leading his family and being a blessing to those around him. Well, they grow up right? And one day at a certain point, it says Esau comes in from hunting and he's pretty hungry, right? Must not have been a great hunter or just a bad day. I don't know. But he comes in and he comes in from hunting and he's hungry. And guess what? Jacob's making some stew and it's a good batch of stew. Smells really, really good. It's awesome. Esau comes in and he goes, man, give me some of that stew. That stew smells really good. Give me some stew. And, and, and Jacob says, give me your birthright. Let me be the firstborn. And it says that Esau thought about it for a second and he said this. He said, what good is my birthright if I starve to death today? Give me the stew. And it says he forsook his birthright. He forsook his inheritance. He forsook his future, his position of leadership, his position in the family, and all of the good things that God had for him because he was hungry today. And you see, this is, this is what we tend to do. We tend to see ourselves as just starving to death today, and we're willing to trade everything about the future that God has for us to be satisfied and gratified in the present. And, and what we generally want in the middle of our hardships is out of the frying pan, right? And God is like, actually, I want you to settle in there. I want to forge you. I want to, I want, I want to take and I want to recreate you into something that you can't be alone and apart from that. There's this book, it's called Jesus Freaks, and, and it was written by an old band called DC Talk did this years ago. And this is, it, it's, it's kind of comparable to Fox's Book of Martyrs, and, and it talks about some of the struggles that, that believers have had over the years. And this one is from uh, Ronesis Flanders in the 1500s, and it says this. It says, I found one. It says, the inquisitor held up the forbidden book 
as he called to his assistants, assistant, bring in the mayor and his family. Someone is studying the Bible in this house. In the 16th century, Philip II sent the Duke of Alba to Flanders to stamp out the Protestants who insisted on reading the scriptures in their own language. Anyone found studying the Bible was hanged, drowned, torn in pieces, or burned alive at the stake. The inquisitors had found the Bible while inspecting the house of the mayor of Brugge. One by one, family members were questioned, but everyone claimed they knew nothing about the, how the Bible got in their house. Finally, the officials asked the young maidservant, Runken, who boldly declared, I am reading it. The mayor, knowing the penalty for studying the Bible, tried to defend her, saying, oh no, she only owns it. She doesn't ever read from it. But Runken chose not to be defended by a lie. This book is mine. I am reading from it, and it is more precious to me than anything. She was sentenced to die by suffocation. A place would be hollowed in the city wall. She would be tied in it, and the opening would be bricked over. On the day of her execution, as she stood by the wall, an official tried to get her to change her mind, saying, so you're so young and beautiful and yet to die. Runken replied, my Savior died for me. I will also die for him. As the bricks were laid higher and higher, she was warned again, you will suffocate and die in here. I will be with Jesus, she answered. Finally, the wall was finished except for one brick that would cover her face. For the last time, the official tried to persuade her, repent, just say the word and you will go free. But Runken refused, saying instead, oh Lord, forgive my murderers. The brick was put in place. Many years later, her bones were removed from the wall and buried in the cemetery of Brugge. Anne Askew, in England of 1546, Anne Askew was imprisoned and greatly tortured for her faith. Placed on a cruel rack, her joints and bones were pulled out of place. She fainted from the pain, but when she regained consciousness, she preached for two hours to her tormentors. On the day of her execution, she was carried to the stake in a chair because her bones were dislocated and she couldn't walk. At the last moment, she was offered the king's pardon if she would recant. She said, I did not come here to deny my Lord and master. She died praying for her murders in the midst of the flames. Unless a grain of wheat is buried in the ground, dead to the world, it is never more than a grain of wheat. But if it is buried, it sprouts and reproduces itself many times over in the same way. Anyone who holds on to his life, just as it is, destroys that life. But if you let go, reckless in your love, you'll have it forever, real and eternal. If any of you want to serve me, then follow me. Jesus. Some Christians haven't even attempted to think about whether or not they would die for Jesus because they haven't really begun to live for him. TC Talk. God, accept all my sufferings, my tiredness, my humiliations, my tears, my nostalgia, my being hungry, my suffering of cold, all the bitterness accumulated in my soul. Dear Lord, have pity on those who persecute and torture us day and night. Grant them to the divine grace of knowing the sweetness and happiness of your love. There was a woman prisoner in Siberia, Vorkuta, USSR, circa the 1960s. Life would be very different for us if we lived someplace like India, Iran, Eritrea, Yemen, Sudan, Pakistan, Libya, Somalia, Afghanistan, or North Korea. Come on now. James 1.12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. 
and James 1.25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. It's this picture that, 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 <clears throat> that we are in a race and that this race involves endurance. The Bible is full of words that we don't really like, like endurance and long-suffering and struggles and hardships. Jesus tells us that, uh, that, that uh, in this world you'll have trouble, but take, take heart because he's overcome the world. To, to not look at this world from this perspective or to, to have our hope or our joy placed here, but to recognize that he's done a greater thing, that, that our hope is in the fact that, that our eternity is secure, that we have what we really truly need. You see, every temporal thing that we seek satisfaction for in this world will have to only be satisfied again because it's temporal, because it's not lasting. Depending on what we think will do it or the things that we believe will, will give us meaning and purpose always, always fall short. Listen to this, what he, what he says that the testing of your, the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. We always think of gold, and gold becomes the ultimate thing that people would fashion idols from, right? It was, it was, it was gold, and, and for centuries, humanity has run all over the globe seeking for gold because we believe that it has these almost imperishable qualities. But what does God say about it? He's like, man, don't, don't, uh, don't chase after stuff that's just going to burn up. Things that won't last, like gold. <laughs> and so, so this, this perspective of how the Bible is calling us always to just shift our perspective, to not live for the here and now, to live for a greater thing, for a greater cause. Verse 8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. What an amazing thing it is that we can know Jesus today. You ever, you ever think about that? How like just through, uh, through, through, through our experience, through God's word, through fellowship, through these things, we, we come to know Jesus on this level that's it's different than just learning about someone. We, we, it's not just like we're, we, we, we enter into a true personal relationship and we're somehow in this deeper spot, we begin to know him in a deeper place. And he takes us to a deeper place. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Remember that God's word, it's not just words on a page. It's a book that, that, that goes somewhere deeper. It goes between soul and spirit. It, it has this spiritual effect in our lives that's really uh, even almost, it's just supernatural and it's unexplainable. But somehow through the pages of this book, we get to know who God is. We, we get to have the privilege of knowing and understanding and, and, and seeing this life that, that, that God incarnate lived out for us to teach us. 
We don't learn everything. We don't get all the answers. So many times we're a people who always want all the answers, but God hasn't called us to be a people who have all the answers. He's called us to be a people who trust in him, who trust in his word, who know him well enough to find him trustworthy, to believe on him so much that our actions begin to follow the very pages of this, that our lives begin to reflect the life of Jesus, that, that, that we begin to understand that, hey, as much as this world has to offer, it's all nothing. That in the end, the reality of my life and your life is that nobody gets out of here alive, right? Nobody's getting out alive. And when we do get out, we know that we're not taking the perishable things of this life with us. Therefore, what's the most logical way to begin to live our lives but is to understand that we have a hope and a joy that cannot be touched in this world? It's, it's the way that we, that, that we demonstrate to the world that we're a peculiar people. See, we're supposed to look a little bit weird. Now, don't look too weird. Don't become a creepy Christian, okay? <laughs> but you want to be, be weird enough that everybody goes... What's different about you? How come you're not bothered by this? How come in the middle of what's going on when we have so much anxiety and so much angst and we don't know what tomorrow's got and we don't know about our health and we're scared about everything, how is it that you have this peace on you? How is it that you can speak to me and offer me hope or whatever that looks like? You see, we're supposed to look different. And the reason we're supposed to look different is because our hope isn't supposed to be here. It's all gravy here, right? It's not even really good gravy either. It's actually really sticky, messy gravy that's like been in the pot for like days, right? That we understand that it's really when we get there that this is our destination, that the reality of it is when we exit this life, we'll enter into the next plane of exist existence, which is an eternal plane. It's a, it's a plane in the presence of, of Jesus. It's a place where sin doesn't exist anymore. It's a place where all goodness and, and there's no death, there's no tears, there's no crying, there's no pain. All of these things are wiped away. And this, this is the hope that we have. Romans 8, 15 through 16, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba. That means daddy, father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Do you know that you're a child of God? Because that's what this is telling us. This is telling us that somehow you just know that you know. You know that you know that you have a relationship with God. You know that you've been touched. That happened to me 20 years ago. When I was 32 years old, I, I hate math. <laughs> I had to think about that. I was 32 years old, and I invited Jesus into my life, and something changed. And I can't tell you where it changed. I can't tell you it was here, it was here, it was here, it was, I, I don't know where it was. I can't point to it, but I haven't been the same since. And I knew that I was different and I knew I wouldn't be the same. And I haven't been the same since. Now I haven't been a perfect guy. I've messed up plenty, like a daily basis, but I've been different. And the things of my life, the things that I pursued, pursue, the perspective on my life was changed because God touched my life. And when he touched my life, it changed my life. See, if we've had an encounter with the creator of the universe, it should leave us changed in a way that we recognize that it's not just here, that there's a bigger picture, that there's more to this.
obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in the things that they have now been, that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. What, what an amazing thing that, that we've been given this prophetic word. You know, the prophecy of the Bible is, is evidence that, that the Bible itself comes from outside of time and space. It's evidence that, that, that God was the author of this book, that there was this continuity of this book and this story, and there were predictions that were made about the future that actually, in real time, in real history, with real people, really happened. And so it reveals to us this, this reality that, that God has, has, has given us this word so that we can know him. See, on the road to Emmaus, after Jesus' resurrection, right, or his death and his, his resurrection, he's going and some of his believers or some of his disciples are headed back home. They're like, I don't know, man, I'm done, I guess. I'm headed back to where I'm from. And it says that Jesus met them on the road. Right, and he walked with them and, 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 and talked to them and, and all of this. And, and finally, you know, he said to them, oh, foolish ones, do, do, you not, do you not get it? Did you not see? Do you not understand? You missed it. And what he did was he took them back into the scripture. And it says that he, he took them and he showed them through all of the, the, the prophets and all of the writings of the Old Testament and stuff, how that all spoke about him. That the reality of all of the, all of the sacrificial system was, it was a picture of Jesus. That the picture of the, the Passover where, where the lamb was brought in and it was, it was slain and the, and the blood was, was put on the doorpost so that the angel of death then would pass over that that was him. And John the Baptist declared him the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, two, two lambs are brought before, God, before the priest and they, they, they would cast lots. And on, on one of the, the lambs, uh, the, the, the lot would fall and, and the priest would, would confess the sins of the people over that lamb. And then that lamb was taken to the wilderness and it was set free. And the lamb that had no sin on it became the sacrifice. You see, and so he told them that all of this stuff and Isaiah 53 that talked about this suffering servant who, who through his suffering would then be glorified. You see, in our faith and our belief system, it is first the suffering and then the glory. It, it's the suffering that suffering is actually something that happens to us that God is at work in and through. The prophets, they, they struggled. We, we see person after person. We see Joseph and he's sold into slavery. We see Jeremiah, he's a weeping, weeping prophet. We see the suffering of Job. We see the martyrdom of the disciples and we see the martyrdom of millions of believers since the time of Jesus up to present. Hebrews eleven thirteen. these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. This was their, this was their perspective. I'm a stranger here. I'm, a, I'm passing through. This is not my home. My home is a, is a greater place. Therefore, because I have a greater home and a greater hope and inheritance, what happens to me here 
cannot rob me of my joy. And that's the big question. You see, the joy that the church has is a witness to the world of the reality of this inheritance and this hope that we're talking about. And so it's important that as believers, we live in this place of joy. Remember that our, our joy is not dependent on our circumstances. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things that were concerning himself. And then he went to his other disciples back at... Uh, back to Jerusalem, and he said to them, these are my words that I spoke with you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You see, this book reveals to us the reality of God and his work in history. It teaches us the nature of humanity, the nature of God, and the relationship between those two. This is the book. It's a, it's, it's a spiritual book. It's a book of, it's a historical book. It's a real book, and it, but it speaks to us in a different way, and it teaches us in ways that don't even make sense. Hebrews 12, 1, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It's not comfortable to run races. I don't run unless anything, something is chasing me, right? But, and, and I've always said, people who are running, they don't look like they're having any fun to me. I guess they are, and I know they like it. Where's Elizabeth? Anyway, she loves to run. I get it, but I struggle. I don't want to run, but it's because I don't enjoy it, but it doesn't matter. This is a race, and, and, and races aren't always enjoyable, but what is enjoyable is winning the race, is getting to the other end, is, is having completed the course of the race, and despite the difficult circumstances that we would... Um, no, they're grueling. Races are grueling. It's first suffering and then it's glory. You see, joy is a decision. It's a choice that we make. If you have a chance to watch Callie, she talks about it for Rock the House. Go to YouTube and watch it. She does a way better job than I am of that. Joy is a choice. It's a, it's a decision. We have joy because our deepest needs are met permanently. Not temporarily, not for now. Our deepest needs, if you're in Christ, your deepest needs, your most important needs are met and they're met forever. Therefore, what has been done for us should change our lives. Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You know, one day, for every one of us, this is all gonna be over with. It's gonna be done. And the struggles and the suffering and the hard things that we've experienced are gonna be part of our history. They're actually gonna become part of our story. And, and one day the Bible says that, that in the very end that 
that Jesus is going to be united with his bride, the church. And there's going to be a party in heaven. It's going to be a really big party. And it's called the wedding supper of the Lamb. And if you're in Christ, you're going to be invited into that party. And, and, and this is, it's really going to be a party. It's going to be a really good one. The best one ever thrown. And there's going to be conversations and there's going to be talk. And we're going to consider and we're going to have a story to tell at that time about our lives, about our experiences, about what we did with the hardships and the hard times in our lives, about how we glorified God in our lives, how we lived for him, how we sacrificed for him, how we gave on others' behalf, how we considered others as more important than ourselves. You see, we're going to have a story to tell. And honestly, when you get up there, you're not going to want your story to be, well, you know, I, I had a pretty good 401k, and, um, you know, I went to church on Sunday. You see, we've been given this opportunity. The, the end of Peter there, it says that even angels longed to see into what we have some, some understanding of. That we sit on the other side of the cross. That, we, that, that for, for all of the Old Testament, they were looking on the other side of the cross, looking forward to it to see what that hope looked like. And now we are on the other side looking back, seeing what has been done for us. And with the recognition of what has been done for us, the most reasonable thing that we can do with our own lives is to just give them back. To give them back, to, to live our lives in a manner that is worthy of this state of eternity that Jesus has bought for us, the, the forgiveness of our sins, the restoration of who we are, the sanctification of our lives, the struggles and the hardships. You see, when we take those, it's a game changer the day you take your struggles and, and, and instead of just allowing them to hold you prisoner to your past, you actually give them to God and you allow him to work good through what's happened in our lives. When we actually say, God, I believe that you're the God who says that you, 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 work, you can work good through all circumstances. But it's to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And what's the calling on our lives? The calling of our lives is to lay them down and to give our lives for others. This is the high calling. And it's the story that we'll talk about and we'll talk about it forever. What did you do while you were there? How did you live your life? You know, so... Lord, we just thank you. We thank you that you've given us a joy, an inexpressible joy, a joy that's, that's greater than our temporal needs. You, you've given us and you've met every eternal need that we have. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would help us as a church and as a people to, to live totally for you, to be sold out for your purposes, to live our lives uh, in a manner that reflects the glory of who you are. Help us, Lord, that we would not be caught up in things that are temporal, things that won't really bring us satisfaction, things that won't bring us purpose, things that won't give meaning into our lives. Lord, help us to quit taking the stew. Help us, Lord, that we would recognize the great inheritance that's given before us. Help us, Lord, to, to live and to wait, to be patient, to know that you, you lift us up when we wait for you, that these are your promises, Lord, and that your promises are greater than our struggles this day. So, Lord, in the middle of these times, especially these times of pandemic and struggle, Lord, may we be a people who are filled with joy and hope and quick to express that to others. May we recognize the... Uh, 
the reality of the days that we live in, that we don't know when you're coming back, Lord, but we know it's never been closer than today. And we certainly see things around us, Lord, that would, would, would just tell us that you're at work and that, and that the, time, the time is short. And so, Lord, may we not be found distracted. May we not be found wasting our time, but may we be found living for the calling on, on your life. Lord, may we wake up every day and say, Lord, fill us with your spirit and guide us in the works that you prepared in advance that we might walk in them this day. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.